divided up into 150 chapters, and in actuality, the uh, chapters are individual hymns. They were songs that were written to be used in corporate worship among the people of Israel. So the book of Psalms is a hymn book. That's what it is. It's a hymn book. And it is rich, and it does have a theme that we see woven throughout the different songs. Uh, I, I think Dr. Kendall Easley gets it right when he says the theme is, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer. Uh, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion, in personal or community life. And so we're reminded by the Psalms time and again that when you're on the mountaintop, God is worthy of your praise. But when you're in the valley, God is still worthy of your praise. He's still in control. He still has a plan. still has a purpose. He's still at work. So he's worthy of our praise in every actuality, every circumstance of life. And the Psalms remind us over and over again that whether we're on the mountaintop or the valley, God is worthy of our trust. We can trust Him. We can, we can maintain our confidence in Him. We can cling to Him no matter what is happening in life. And the Psalms remind us of that. I really like this quote from John Piper. He says, The Psalms are songs. They are poems. They are written to awaken and express uh, and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. So we are reminded from this quote that the Psalms are filled with emotion and they are, um, they are truths that we resonate with because we see psalmists here dealing with a range of different situations, a range of emotions, still going to the Lord in praise and confidence. And so... Uh, we uh, love these psalms. And we've made it to Psalm 90, and I, I, I was, you know, being a little bit funny a little earlier, but I really do love Psalm 90. I usually try to read this psalm at the end of a year, the beginning of a new year, because it really helps me to put in perspective uh, time and life and uh, reminds me of what life is all about. And so it is really good for that purpose. Look there with me in Psalm 90. It says, A prayer of Moses, the man of God. More on that in a moment. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth. Wherever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, verse 12, teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Let me read that verse again. So, teach us to number our days, that we may get, or we may acquire, a heart of wisdom. Wisdom. I want to talk to you tonight about the brevity of life. Life is 
short. James says it's like a vapor. When I read that verse in James, I always think about when the weather cools off and you can go outside and you can breathe and there's just a little bit of vapor there just for a moment as your uh, breath hits the cold air and that vapor is quickly gone. It quickly vanishes. And that's a picture of what life is like. Life is short and we need to understand that if we're going to live life rightly. And that is the purpose of Psalm 90. So two things to note at the beginning and then we're going to talk a little bit about what he says and and, and go from there. But, but two thoughts uh, to note at the beginning of this psalm. Notice there in the small letters, it says, A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Moses wrote this. This is the only psalm out of the 150 chapters that is attributed to Moses. Th- that would mean this is probably the oldest psalm because Moses lived uh, uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the time when these psalms were probably collected. This is probably uh, the oldest psalm that the people of Israel had access to that they included in the Psalter, or the 150 chapters. And so Moses wrote this. Charles Spurgeon writes, Moses was peculiarly a man of God and God's man, chosen of God, inspired of God, honored of God, faithful to God in all his house. He well deserved the name which is here given him. Because notice it says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. It calls him the man of God. That's a title uh, that this psalm gives to him. Moses was a godly man. Uh, he was a man that uh, had direct access to the Lord and led the people of Israel on behalf of the Lord. He led them from Egyptian bondage and slavery. He led them to Mount Sinai where God gave them the Ten Commandments and the law. He led them to the promised land. And even though the people cowered and would not go to the promised land and obey God, he stayed with them and led them through 40 years of wilderness wanderings and led them faithfully. And so Moses was a man of God. He wrote this chapter, this psalm. And so notice who wrote it, Moses. But also notice it's a prayer. It says there, a prayer of Moses. This is Moses actually talking to God. It's a prayer to God. So remembering that uh, puts this psalm in its proper context because it's about uh, prayer. Now, verses 1 through 11, which I just read to you, is really a contrast between the eternality of God and the brevity of our lives. Notice there it mentions how God is eternal. Look what it says in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So God, you, 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 you have existed for eternity past and will exist into eternity future. That's who you are. But look at man's life, his life on this earth. It's not eternal. It is the direct opposite of eternal. It is very, very brief. He says there, verse 3, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. A thousand years in your, uh, for a thousand years in your sight are, are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. It's how sort our life is like. It's like a dream. It's, it's there for a moment, then it goes away. It's like grass that grows, but then it withers after it's renewed. It, it says in verse 6, it flourishes, renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. That's what our life is like. It, it seems like when we're young, we're going to live forever, but then we notice, hey, our life is fading quickly. And by the way, that's really encouraging, right? Encouraging. And then he says, for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins of the light of your presence. Here's what he's saying. Not only is life short, but we make a mess of it. Right? Not only is it short, not only is it brief, but we blow it. We, we, we bring 
uh, hardship and pain and brokenness in our lives because of the decisions and choices that we make. All our days pass away under your wrath. We understand we are not right with God apart from Christ. We are under His condemnation. Things are not right between us and God because we have sinned. And we bring our years to an end like a sigh. Then he kind of gets more specific. He says, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. It's a pretty good picture of life. You may live 70 years. You may live 80. If you beat the odds, you may go into your 90s or even get over the threshold of 100. But you're not going to live past that. Life is short and it's full of trouble. Trouble brought into our lives by others and trouble we bring upon ourselves. And so he says in verse 12, help us to understand these realities about life. Help us to understand the brevity of life. Help us to understand that life is short so that we, instead of making a mess of life, will live life to the fullest. That's what he says. Look in verse 12. So that we will... Uh, have wisdom. We may get a heart of wisdom to take advantage of the days that you give us. If life is short, you don't want to blow it all, do you? If, if life is short, you want to take advantage of the time you have to live wisely and to maximize the time that God gives you. And so verses 1 through 11 is a contrast between God being eternal but life being brief, life being very, very short. And so, in light of that, in verses 12 through 17, we see that Moses, in this prayer, makes some specific requests of God. It's like Moses is saying, Lord, life is short, so here's what I'm asking you to do for me. That's what this psalm is. So what I want to do is, I want to give you five prayer requests in light of the brevity of life. Five prayer requests, five things that you and I ought ought to pray along with Moses in light of the brevity of life. Life is short, so these are some things we ought to want God to do in our lives so we can live wisely and make the most of this life. So five prayer requests in light of the brevity of life. Number one, teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days. Look in verse 12. Teach us, is the request, Lord, teach us to number our days. That's why I like to read this psalm at the end of one year, the beginning of a new year, just to remind myself, just to, just to get my perspective back to where it needs to be, to remind myself that, that this life is not forever. It's like grass. It flourishes one minute. It fades the next. And so I, I want to just be reminded that my days are numbered. And, and that's true, isn't it? My days are numbered. Your days are numbered. All of our days are numbered. We need to understand the brevity of life. Or let me say it like this. We need to grasp the reality that life is short. We need to grasp the reality that life is short. Now hold your place there, but turn to Ecclesiastes with me. Go to Psalms. After Psalms, you get to Proverbs. Then you get to Ecclesiastes. And look in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. This is a really shocking verse. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. I'm toying around with the idea of preaching through Ecclesiastes after we finish Galatians. I'm not sure on that yet. We'll see. But I'm just I'm seeing what the Lord might, how the Lord might lead in that. But look with me in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Why? For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. You know what Solomon's saying there? Solomon's saying... It's better to go to a funeral than a party. 
Why? Funerals put life in its proper perspective. Funerals are uncomfortable, right? Because they remind us of our own mortality. They remind us that, you know what? There's a casket up there, there's a body in that casket, and it may not be much longer till there's going to be a funeral for me. It, it could be, it, I could die this week. I, I could die before the sun goes down today. I mean, we, we need to understand that life is short, and, and if we're always partying and always kind of living it up, then we'll never have that proper perspective that life is short and then desire to live wisely in the time that we have. Uh, there was a, a time that there was a real popular t-shirt out. I forget the name of the t-shirt, the company. But it basically said something like this. Life is short, play hard. Everybody remember that shirt that came out? Life is short, play hard. Uh, and, and that would be the exact wrong perspective of life. Hey, life is short, so live it up, right? That's not, that's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible says, hey, life is short, approach it rightly. Take advantage of the time that you have. So it's better to go to a funeral than a party. That's what Ecclesiastes says. Because it reminds us of the brevity of life. We need to grasp the reality that life is short. So back in Psalm 90, that's what Moses prays. Teach us to number our days. Here's the deal. He says, so that we might get or acquire a heart of wisdom. We'll live wiser lives. If we understand, now listen, this is an important statement. If we understand that tomorrow is not guaranteed, we will live differently today. Let me say that again. If we understand that tomorrow is not guaranteed, we will live differently to live with wisdom in this day, in, in the day that we have. Charles Spurgeon said, Men are led by reflections upon the brevity of time to give their earnest attention to eternal things. They become humble as they look into the grave, which is so soon to be their bed. Their passions cool in the presence of mortality, and they yield themselves up to the dictates of unerring wisdom. But this is only the case, listen to this, this is only the case when the Lord himself is the teacher. He alone can teach to real and lasting profit. So listen, if you understand life is short, and you let God teach you, he'll give you wisdom to approach life rightly. But if you listen to Epicurean philosophy, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Life is short, play hard. If you listen to the world's philosophy, then you will approach this brief life in a wrong way. And you will live not a meaningful, impactful life. You will live a wasted life. And so the first prayer request is, teach us to number our days. I'm sure most of you saw the really scary story about the Southwest flight headed from New York to, uh, I think it was Dallas, Texas, and uh, an engine exploded, and it had to make an emergency landing in Philadelphia, and they said the, the uh, pilot uh, was heroic, the way she was able to get the plane on the ground, just did a, a magnificent job. But when the engine exploded, shrapnel from the engine hit the window and bust open the window at 30,000 feet. A woman sitting there was partially sucked out of that window, and she lost her life. Now listen to me. When she walked on that plane that morning, she thought, what am I going to do when I get to Texas? Who's going to pick me up? Where are we going to go eat after that? What are we going to do? And thinking through 
what was going to happen. I mean, I've been on a m- many, many plane flights, and you just think about what you're going to do when you arrive, right? I'd be very surprised if that woman walked on the plane and thought, I could die on this flight. But that's life. We're not guaranteed another blink of our eye. We're not guaranteed another beat of our heart. That's all in God's hands. We can trust Him. He, he knows what's best. But, but we, we dare not live like life has no end point. We need to say, you know what? Life is brief, and so in the time that you give me, I want to make a difference. That's what Paul said over in Philippians 1. He said, to live is Christ. Every day that I have is another opportunity to live for Christ. Then he says, to die is gain. If I die, it gets better because I go to heaven and I'm with Jesus forever, and so heaven's better than here. But every day that I have is a day to live for Jesus. That was his perspective. And here's my question. Is that your perspective? Life is short, so every day that I have is a gift from God. It's a day to make a difference. It's a day to live an impactful life, and I don't want to waste this day. So the first prayer request is, Lord, teach us to number our days. Here's the second prayer request in this psalm. Satisfy us with your love. That's what he prays to the Lord. Satisfy us with your love. Look what it says there in verse 14. He's praying, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Now that word translated steadfast love is the Hebrew word kesed. I think I talked about that maybe last week. It's a beautiful Hebrew word. It's kind of the Hebrew equivalent for grace, but there's so much involved in this word it's hard to translate. Uh, it, it has the idea of mercy, grace, love, uh, steadfastness. It's all caught up in this word. And so steadfast love is probably a good translation but he says there satisfy us in the morning with your love this speaks of relationship satisfy us in our relationship with you god you love us we know you you're our god now satisfy us in that relationship help us to be satisfied by you more than by anything else this world has to offer and notice what he says there satisfy us in the morning i want my day to start out being satisfied by you, because Moses understands, if, if my day doesn't start out with you, I'm going to look for satisfaction in other places. And that's not going to work out so well. It's like Mick Jagger said, I can't get no satisfaction. Why? He was looking in the wrong places, right? And, and so we want to begin our day being satisfied with God's love, satisfied in our relationship with Him. I wonder if when Moses wrote this, he was thinking about manna. You remember manna? People of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. They said, we don't have anything to eat, and we're going to starve. Why did, why, God, why did you bring us out of Egypt? We, at least in Egypt, we had food to eat. And so the Lord, even though they were murmuring and did not trust him, God showed his grace, and God gave them every morning manna. And the Bible describes this manna as, as these... Uh, bread-like wafers with a touch of honey. They were basically little, little honey buns on the ground. Can I? You like honey buns? I, I enjoy a honey bun every now and then. But, but they're like basically little honey buns on the ground. And, and, and every morning there was fresh manna. And the Lord sent back home uh, with you uh, more than you can eat for that day. It'll turn into worms. And it did. Why? 
God wanted them to trust him for satisfaction every morning. Don't take more than you need. Get what you need. And in the morning, there'll be more to meet your need for that day. So I wonder if, if when Moses was writing this, he was thinking about manna. Just like you satisfy us with manna every morning, God, would you satisfy us with your love in the morning? Remind us in the morning that we find our satisfaction in you. Finding our satisfaction in the Lord is important because we will never find it in this world. Finding our satisfaction in the Lord is important because we will never find it in this world. And let me ask you a question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that apart from Christ, you'll never find lasting satisfaction in this world? I really believe that. There's a famous quote from uh, uh, John Rockefeller. You know, very wealthy businessman. And he was asked one time, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? You know what his answer was? One more dollar. You think being rich will satisfy you? It won't. You just want more. Right? Think a new car will satisfy you? It's just going to depreciate. Think a new house is going to satisfy you? Not too far down the road, you're going to need a new roof. Right? And it's encouraging. I'm just, I'm just trying to build you up tonight, all right? But, here, but here's my point. The, the things that the world promises will satisfy you don't get the job done, do they? You, you see, we all have a, a God-sized hole in our heart, and only God can fill that up. If you try to fill a God-sized hole with these trinkets of life, it's not going to get the job done. And so Moses prays, life is short. It's short. So would you every day satisfy me with your love? So I'm not spending time, wasting time, chasing after frivolous things that do not satisfy. Satisfy me with your love. And if you ask God to do that, he will. Every day remind you that you are his and he is yours. He loves you. He's walking with you. He's meeting your needs. He's encouraging you. He's providing for you. He's watching over you. He is your God and Savior. He'll satisfy you with His love. I'll, I'll never forget, and I've shared the story before, but I'll never forget, I was a youth minister at a church in Memphis, and we had a gentleman that visited our church, and he left some visitor information. He came several times, and he had a, a physical handicap, and he was um, disabled, and so he, he left his address, and we went to go see this man one day. I went with my pastor. I was a, again, I was a student pastor. And so my pastor and I went, and it was in a, it was in a uh, really uh, tough area of town. Um, and the situation he was living in was uh, some assisted housing, and it was, uh, it, it, it was run down. It smelled uh, horrid. And we made our way to his apartment where this, this disabled man was living. And we walked in, and, and there was nothing in the apartment. And it was, it, was, it was dirty. And it was one of the most depressing environments I think I've, I've ever been in. And, and we ministered to him and spent some time with him. And we uh, left that building, and we were walking back to uh, my pastor's car. And I'll never forget what my pastor said. 
He said, I just wonder if that was me, would Jesus be enough? Good question, isn't it? If I didn't have all the trappings of life and things I enjoy now and the, the, the nice house and the, the nice car and the good steady job and income, and if, I didn't have, if, I, if all that was stripped away and, and I didn't have my health and I couldn't work for a living and, and I couldn't get up even to clean my house and, and no one cared about me and I was isolated and all alone, I wonder if, if Jesus would be enough. Moses says... Lord, this life is short, this life is hard and full of trouble, but I believe you're enough. So would you satisfy me every morning with your love? That's a great prayer to pray, amen? So the first prayer is teach us to number our days. Second prayer is satisfy us with your love. Third prayer is make us glad. Make us glad. Look back with me in Psalm 90, verse 15. Make us, what's the word there? glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. And they're really saying, hey, life is hard, it's tough, it's affliction, and so would you at least give us some gladness in the midst of that? That's what he's saying. For as many years as we have seen evil. So, hey, we know it's going to be hard, know it's going to be tough, and so would you give us some gladness in the midst of that difficulty? Make us glad. Life is short and difficult, so we need a joy, listen to this, that is greater than our circumstances. If your joy, if your happiness in life is contingent upon circumstances, your joy will, will ebb and flow because circumstances change. Can I get a witness? You ever feel like sometimes you're kind of getting life just right where you, it's kind of all falling into place, and it's just kind of just like you want it, and then what happens? Something happens, something changes, and you know, then you got to struggle with this. You kind of get that like you need it, and over here something goes wrong. And you come over here, and you're trying to fix that, and then something over. It's, it's kind of like trying to uh, plug a, a leaky dam. You, you put a plug in over here, and water shoots out over there, and you're trying to, you're trying to stop the dam from bursting. And that's what life is like a lot of times. So if your joy, if your happiness, if your contentment is based upon circumstances, you're going to be a pretty miserable person. It's going to be a roller coaster for you. But if your joy is a joy that abides even though circumstances change, you can be a joyful person all of your days. That, that's what he's saying there. Make us glad. And listen to this. True abiding joy only comes from God. True abiding joy only comes from God. If you want to have the joy that is bigger than your circumstances, you've got to get it from God. He's the only one that can make us glad. He's the only one that can give us that kind of joy. Now let me say a couple things about this kind of joy. This kind of joy will sustain you through difficult times. And this kind of joy is, is attractive. In other words, people don't understand joy that is not contingent upon circumstances. So if people in your workplace or in your family or in, in uh, your neighborhood, if they see you living joyfully, even though you're experiencing difficulties just like everyone else, if they see you living out joy consistently, they're going to wonder what you have that they don't. I've had many of you through the years come to me and say, you know, on the job, uh, I had a coworker come and sit down with me and tell me they needed some help with their teenager or they had some problem in their life and they opened up to me or they were sick with something, they came to me 
why, why are folks in the workplaces coming to members of our church? Because they see in those members joy. They see something different. And, and when their life is falling apart, they want to talk to someone whose life is not falling apart. Amen? And so if you'll just live a joyful life, I promise you, it will open up evangelistic opportunities. You want to talk to somebody about the Lord? Just be joyful. And I promise you, I promise you, it will open up doors for folks to say, hey, I need some help because it seems like you've got something going on I don't have. And so in the midst of my, my trouble, I want to talk to you. What do you got? Why are you joyful even though the wheels fall off of your life the same way they do off of mine? So joy is attractive, isn't it? It's an attractive thing. It, it, you, you can probably think with me today, maybe some folks in your life, maybe folks in your life right now or in your past that were truly joyful people. Uh, I remember growing up in Burton Baptist Church in Perry, Florida. Uh, Helen Pitts was my Sunday school teacher. And we were a small church. We just had a small group. It was like me and the pastor's daughter. We were the children's ministry. And so this, uh, this uh, teacher, Miss Pitts, she just moved up with us. She was our teacher in third grade and fourth grade and fifth grade and sixth grade. I mean, she was with us all, the, the entire time. And, and she was a widow, and she had health issues. Uh, in fact, the last time I saw her, uh, she was... Uh, laying on her deathbed, dying from basically uh, a degenerative lung disease where she was basically slowly suffocating to death. It was awful. I mean, it was awful. Uh, and and I, I remember I walked in to speak to her. I was in college, and, and I was with my pastor. And uh, we walked in, and we just tried to, we wanted to go comfort her. All she wanted to talk about was us, and she wanted to comfort us and talk about us and encourage us. And I, I, we walked out, and we got in the car. Man, I just lost it. I mean, I just, I just lost it. And, 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 and my pastor understood what was going on in my heart. I just, it, it, when you go in and you see a godly, joyful woman that is radiating with Jesus, even though she's dying and hurting and suffering, it speaks volumes, doesn't it? speaks volumes. Now, remember, again, that kind of joy comes from the Lord. We can't work that up. Okay, We can't wake up in the morning and say, happy, 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 happy. I'm going to be happy today, right? That's not how it works. We've got, to, we've got to let the Lord do that in our life. That's why Moses asked, Lord, would you make me glad? Would you give me that abiding joy that is not contingent upon circumstances? And so the third request is, make us glad. Here's the fourth request. By the way, Miss Helen Pitts, she was the first lady that told me I was going to be a preacher. I was 12, and she said, Wade, you're going to be a preacher one day. And I thought she had lost her mind. And the Lord didn't call me until I was uh, 20, and so, uh, 21. And so, uh, you know, but she saw something, had some kind of insight or intuition, and, and uh, she was a special lady. She really was. She taught me, she was the first lady to teach me about the armor of God. She would tell us in the Sunday school that every morning she'd get up and pray on the armor of God from Ephesians 6. And uh, boy, she was, she was something. Godly woman. She, she was talking about missions when no one else was. No one else in the church talking about missions, but Miss Pitts was. She and Miss Whitten, they were the only ladies that talked about missions. They would get the WMU magazine and... Every now and then they'd get a, they'd get a like five minute segment of the service. They'd read a missionary moment from that magazine, and and uh, I remember that. No one was talking about missions except those two ladies in our church. They had a profound impact on me. I really did. 
Number uh, four, fourth request. Show us your glorious work. I love this one. Show us. Life is short. So in this short, brief life, would you show us your power? I love that. Look what he says in, uh, in verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to their children. Let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to their children. I, I love that. Life is short, Lord. I, I don't want to go through the motions. I want to see you do something. I want to see you move with power. I, I want to see you work so I can stand back and say, Wow, what a mighty God. That's a great prayer to pray. Lord, life is short. I don't know how long I have on this, on this earth. So would you show me some, some, some of your greatness? Would you just move in an unusual way so I can see that in this life? We should long to see God's power. And what are some areas that we should long to see God's power in? First of all, in our lives. I believe we should desire for, for God to do some stuff in our life, individually. Amen? We, we should want God to work. God, change me. Help me. Encourage me. If I'm sick, heal me. If I'm needy, provide for me. If, uh, if I'm anxious, comfort me. If I'm in a desperate situation, rescue me. I mean, we should desire to see God show His power in our individual lives. God, would you do a work in me? Would you do a work for me? Would you show your power in my individual life? When I pray for others and I pray for my own life, I often pray like this. God, would you, would you just place your fingerprints all over their life so they would see that you are at work in and through them. And so we need to pray for God's power in our lives. We need to pray for God's power in our families. Notice what Moses says there. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. I wonder here if Moses is referring to the generation that's going to go into the promised land. Because remember, the Lord said, this unbelieving generation, disobedient generation, they're going to die in the wilderness, then their children will go into the promised land. So I wonder if what Moses is saying God, would you show us your power, and then would you continue to show your power to our children who actually go into the promised land? And if that's who he's talking about, God answered that prayer, right? Because when Joshua took the children of Israel into the promised land, God moved with great power, right? I, I spent a year preaching through Joshua. He moved with great power. And so we need to uh, ask for God to show his power in our families. God, do a work. In, in my marriage, do work in my kids, do work in my extended family. God, would you move in our families? We, we should long to see God's power in our churches. In our churches. You've heard me talk often about the great revivals in America, the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the... Um, the prayer revival of 1857 in New York, the, um, the Jesus movement in the uh, 70s, late 60s, early 70s, uh, which was really probably the last awakening that America has had on a, a large scale. And by the way, if you want to watch a, a movie in that context, there's a, a football movie called Woodlawn. Anybody ever seen Woodlawn? Have you ever seen that movie? 
great. It's Paul, uh, Bear Bryant's in there. I mean, not the real Bear Bryant, but an actor playing Bear Bryant. And it's about football and racial reconciliation. But the backdrop of that movie is the Jesus movement. And, and the reason that, that there was great racial reconciliation taking place is because Jesus was changing lives in the South and, and bringing folks together. And it's just remarkable. You use football to do it. And so it's just a, it's a great movie. But the backdrop is the Jesus movement. You'll see some more about the Jesus movement in that movie. So if you haven't seen Woodlawn, I encourage you to watch that uh, movie. Uh, but we should long to see God do that again, right? Uh, and, and in our churches where we see God bring revival and, and, and awakening and, and our lives change and, and we come to worship, there's just a real sense of God's presence in our midst and, and, and we know we've met with the living God. We should long for God to do that in our churches. We should long for God to do that in our nation. Again, we need another awakening in our land. America needs awakening. I mean, I don't think I have to spend a lot of time convincing you of that, right? Everything that used to be called right is now called wrong, and everything that used to be called wrong is now called right. Things are upside down. Things are morally topsy-turvy, and we are in decay in a downward spiral, and we need a touch of God to just move with the power of His Spirit to, to, to transform things. And so uh, we, should, we should pray this prayer. Show us your glorious work. I love the what Jehoshaphat says in St. Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, they're surrounded by a great horde of enemies. They're about to be decimated by this large coalition of armies. And Jehoshaphat, the, the king, says, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but we're going to watch you do something. And that's, in effect, what Moses is praying. Lord, our eyes are on you. Show us your power, your glorious work. And there's a fifth request here. Number one, teach us to number our days. Number two, satisfy us with your love. Number three, make us glad. Number four, show us your glorious work. Number five, give permanence to our lives. Life is short, so Lord, let what we do count. That's what Moses is saying. Let what we do matter. Look in verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, he says it twice. Establish the work of our hands. Now that word establish literally could be translated give permanence to. That's what the word means. So Moses is praying here, Lord, give permanence to the work of our hands. Let what we do matter. Or let me say it like this. We should want our lives to outlive us. The impact of our lives, we should want them to outlive us. Miss Pitts, Helen Pitts, I just told you about, she's been gone for more than 20 years. I'm still talking about her. The Lord worked through her and gave permanence to the work of her hands. Even though she's dead, as the Bible says, she's still speaking. Amen? Her life still lives on. And, and that should be all of our goal. That when, when we die, the impact that God allowed us to have by His grace and by His strength and for His glory, not our glory, but for His glory, will continue to live on, will continue to count, will continue to matter. We should want our lives to outlive us. We should live in such a way in this brief time slot that God gives us 
that when we're no longer here, what we did is still making an impact. Give permanence to the work of our hands. Matthew Henry, the old English preacher, writes this, We are so unworthy of divine assistance and yet so utterly insufficient to bring anything to pass without it. I like that. That we, we have need to be earnest for it and to repeat the request. God, I, I need your assistance. If I'm going to do anything that matters, anything that lasts, I need you to help me. Give permanence to the work of our hands. The famous illustration of, of what Moses is getting at here is the illustration of the line and the dot. You, you've heard this before probably, but just imagine for a moment that there's a line that comes right through this room and it goes forever that way and it goes forever that way. It's an eternal line. It has no ending, has no beginning. Then imagine on this line, right, that goes right across here. Notice just on this line, just imagine there's a little dot right there, about the size of a dime, right there on that dot. There's a little dot right there on that line. The illustration is this. The line represents eternity. That dot represents your one brief life on this earth. And the admonition that comes from that illustration is this. Listen. Live for the line, not for the dot. Live so that the line's going to be impacted. The little dot you have, live in such a way that when you get to eternity, what you did on this earth will matter. You know what's going to matter in eternity? Um, did you walk with God on this earth? Is Jesus going to seem like kind of a Someone you know and you think he's cool, but kind of you're kind of distant from him because you didn't really walk with him on this earth? Did you read your Bible on this earth? I, I said this to my kids uh, at dinner this week. I said, you know, wouldn't it be embarrassing if you meet Habakkuk having never read the book that bears his name? <laughs> Hi, Habakkuk. Glad to meet you. I was going to read your book one day, I promise. But I never got around to it, right? So everybody read Habakkuk tonight, all right? Because you're going to meet him in heaven. We're going to be there forever. And Haggai too, and Zechariah, and, and Malachi, and Hosea. You need to read, okay, you need to read those books, all right? But we need to ask God to do things in our life, in this short time span that we have on this earth, that are going to outlive us. They're going to matter in eternity. Live for the line. Eternity, not for the dot. This small little slice of life. And that will be very, very important. And so, in light of the brevity of life, God, you're eternal. This life is short. It's like grass that, that flourishes, then at night it withers away. That's what life is like. In light of the brevity of life, five prayer requests from Moses. Lord, teach us to number our days. Lord, satisfy us with your love. Lord, make us glad. Lord, show us your glorious work. Lord, give permanence to our lives. Warren Wearsby sums this up when he writes, Life is brief, so Moses prayed, teach us. Life is difficult, and he prayed, satisfy us. His work at times seemed futile, so he prayed, establish the work of our hands. God answered those prayers for Moses, and he will answer them for us. Listen to this. The future is your friend when Jesus is your Savior and Lord. 
The future is your friend when Jesus is your Savior and Lord. So I hope you like Psalm 90. I hope you'll make this a regular part of your reading schedule. And I hope that these prayers that Moses prays, these requests that Moses makes will be requests in your life. That you ask God to do these things in your life. Because we only have one shot at this life, right? And we want God to work in us and through us in the time that he gives us.